Well, as an introduction to our topic this evening, the sad reality is that millions of examples could be shared in order to communicate the tragedy of sexual sin. We wouldn't have to go far at all. In fact, I don't, I'm confident we wouldn't even have to leave these walls to see examples of the consequences of moral failures on behalf of Christians. But to really bring this home, I think there's nothing that's more striking than the failure of the church's leaders, and that is the pastors. Three years ago, I sat at a pastor's conference with another pastor from the valley, um, and we listened to one of the funniest speakers, let alone pastors I'd ever heard, and the guy did a pretty good job with the text as well as he preached. Come to find out, he was pastoring one of the largest mega churches in the U.S. in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. With 30,000 in attendance, he had successfully built this Calvary Chapel church to a more than respectable size. And yet one year after this conference, it would come out that senior pastor Bob Coy had been in tragic, multiple, adulterous relationships that were even ongoing at that time. Even more recently than that, though, Billy Graham's grandson, William Graham Tolian Chavijan, pastored Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, also in Florida, and a contributor to the Gospel Coalition. Yet in June 2015, he resigned as senior pastor after admitting to an adulterous affair. Two months later, he was hired on somehow at another church, only to have another affair come out nine months after that. Friends, sadly, these two examples are but a sampling of the consequences of sin, even among the leaders of churches and so-called churches. They are common stories of the pastor who's caught with internet pornography on his office computer, the minister who lives in adultery that goes undetected for months and even years, the missionary who drifts into various forms of sexual sin because it's easily accessible on the mission field, the pastor's wife who feels lonely and abandoned and finds comfort in the arms of another man. If this is true of the pastors in some scenarios, not all pastors, but in some places, what do you think the state of the church is? Friends, this has got to stop. As the church seeks to be a witnessing community to the lost world, we are dragging our God and Savior right through the mud to the witnessing public. Where sexual sin exists, the testimony is lost, the witness is lost, the ministry is lost and voided. And so it's no surprise that God takes sexual sin very seriously. In fact, in both Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22, it says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall be put to death. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. So as we come to this text tonight, the stakes are high. And while we recognize the sexual rampancy of our day, the first century was no different. Therefore, both God and God in the flesh take the time to make instructions to his people very clear regarding this matter. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And I'll read verses 27 to 30, although tonight we'll just look at 27 and 28. Matthew 5, verse 27, Jesus speaking, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Like I said, tonight we'll just look at verse 27 and 28 of this passage, then we'll have advanced conference, then we'll come back and hit 29 and 30. And so for the sake of these two messages and for the sake of the community groups, what I want to do first tonight is give a brief introduction to this wonderful sermon, as Deontay said, the best sermon ever preached. And the first thing I want to take into account is the audience. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we see that there's two groups of people listening. The disciples who came to Jesus and the crowds who were gathered around. But it's important to note that Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is not chronologically ordered. And with some study, I believe that this sermon was established well into Jesus' ministry. The fact that he's an established teacher is supported by how many people came to listen to him. No one would have showed up if they didn't know who he was at this point. In fact, commentator John Lenski said, when this sermon was preached, the 12 had already been appointed apostles and many others had become Jesus' disciples. The sermon is addressed to them. The multitudes who also heard are secondary. These crowds were to hear and to know what the truth of the disciples of Christ really possessed and what their lives in the kingdom would henceforth be. In this way, and only in this way, the sermon opened the door of the kingdom to the crowds, showed them what was inside, and bid them to enter and join those already inside. And so while this is addressed primarily to Jesus' disciples, or aka his followers, the influence of the religious leaders who were there and who had influenced everyone uh, would have been pervasive even down to the disciples. Jesus would have been aware of the fact that even his disciples had been influenced by the religion of the day. And so the way he goes about giving this sermon is by way of contrast. He's contrasting to their religion. And I think it's important that we know there were four major religions for the Jews in this day. The first were the Pharisees. They believed that religion was composed of divine laws and religious traditions. They observed the Mosaic law in detail and the passed down laws from their fathers. They were, in a sense, viewed as the legalists. Then there were the Sadducees, and they were the religious liberals. They discounted most supernatural things. They didn't even believe in resurrection, and they really modified Scripture to fit their tradition. Thirdly, there were the Essenes, and they believed that right religion was separation from society. They lived in remote, barren barren areas and were not involved in everyday life with everyone else. And then lastly, there were the Zealots, and these guys were the fanatical nationalists, They believed that religion centers on political activism. They were the Jewish revolutionaries who wanted to overthrow Rome. And so this crowd that's gathered around Jesus as he gives this sermon would have undoubtedly consisted of people who fell into one of these four categories, including his disciples. And here's the thing, is that all four of these groups had essentially missed the point. They had missed the mark of God's will and That's why by the end of this sermon, Jesus only had 12 disciples left as he delivers it straight to them. So as he begins this sermon, he starts by putting forth a blessing. And if you look at verses 1 to 12, you'll notice this repeated pattern, blessed, 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 blessed. Jesus begins by sharing both his and the Father's will that it is for people to be happy. The Father's desire was for people to be happy. So Jesus begins with giving the way to receive blessing. 
And this is important. We need to know this because Jesus is not dangling out a carrot in this sermon that can never be attained. As we read through the rest of this sermon in our community groups, he's not setting an unachievable standard. He wants blessing to be manifested in the lives of those who are listening. In other words, he's not playing a cosmic game of cat-mouse where you've got the laser, you know, maybe you're playing with your cat and you're going up the wall and the, mouse, the cat's jumping for what he thinks is the mouse and it's just a little red dot. Jesus is not doing that with us. He's not just setting us up in a big cosmic game of cat and mouse. He wants people, okay, he wants people to have a deep-rooted joy and blessedness in their lives. So that's really where the whole sermon flows from is this introduction. But before moving on, there's another important aspect that we need to know, and that is that we need to understand how the Old Testament law, specifically the Mosaic law, works. Guys, the Mosaic law was not merely an external code. But I also want to say this, the Mosaic law was not merely a tutor either. And some of your radars are pinging, Galatians 3.24, I know. But I said it's not merely a tutor either. In other words, the Mosaic law was not just a giant trick. God's intent with the Ten Commandments was not to give some arbitrary commands that whoever stumbles upon them should just do them and they would achieve righteousness. No, the Ten Commandments were intended for a people group who were the people of God. You first had to have a relationship with God and then the commandments were to keep that relationship intact. In fact, the original intent of the Ten Commandments were based in love. They're not just a big rule book. God had made a covenant with Abraham and his seed, which would become Israel. And this covenant was that the Lord would be their God and they would be his people. And so God enters a relationship with them and this is his intent all along. He desires relationship. The Ten Commandments then, get this, they're simply a guide for what this sort of relationship ought to look like. They were the boundaries for this love relationship between God and his people. Just to illustrate this, have you ever dated a gal or a guy or maybe courted, you prefer the term, right? If you've ever been in a relationship with the opposite sex, hopefully at some point you established some boundaries and some guidelines. Why? Because you cared about them and you cared about your relationship with the Lord. You set up some parameters for what your relationship would look like. Well, in the same way, the Ten Commandments were the parameters for what this covenant relationship was to look like. They're not just arbitrary rules and commands, but for example, if the people were to truly love God, then they would not follow after other gods. If the people were to truly love God, then they wouldn't set up idols and worship them. If the people were to truly love God, and if that was to be manifested in the way that they lived, among the other people, then they wouldn't hate their brother or murder their sister or cheat on their wife or you name it and you go down through the Ten Commandments. These are boundaries for what the people of God were to live like in order to keep this love relationship intact. And really, it's summarized by Jesus saying, in quoting the Old Testament, here's the summary of the whole law. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the pattern, love. So the commands were to help us live in light of this love relationship. And ultimately, God is after the heart. 
You're going to hear me say that a lot tonight. He's after the heart, and he's always been after the heart. He's always been after the intimate relationship that gets down to the level of the heart. Enoch was a man who walked with God. David was a man after God's own heart. Hosea in 6.3 says, Let us press on to know the Lord. Jeremiah 24.7, he says, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord and they will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. And in John 17.3, Jesus says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It, it comes down to knowing God at the intimate, personal level. And God is after the relationship that originates in the heart. Now, in light of this, here's why we did this background. When Jesus says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about the Mosaic Law, and he says, you have heard that it was said, he is not redefining the law. That is a we need to get that in our minds. He is not redefining the law. Instead, he's explaining it. Jesus is explaining the law. He's saying what the commandment always said. For those who loved God, these commands would be a guide to keep their hearts from wandering. They would protect their hearts from wandering and keep them in a loving walk with the Lord. But simply doing the commands with no love wouldn't produce anything. Some were trying to keep the letter of the law without even knowing the Lord. That was never the intent. And yet, that's just what the scribes and the Pharisees had done in Jesus' day. It's what the religious system of the Jews had amounted to. Do this, don't do this, and you're good to go. The Pharisees hadn't hired the bar. They had lowered the bar. They had cleansed the outside of the cup but not the inside. They were, as Jesus says, whitewashed tombs. And so in verses 21 to 48 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, Jesus reestablishes the original intent of the law, which was to get to the heart. So here's my question. With this understanding of the law as background, what is Jesus basically talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? And again, these are for the sake of these sermons and your community groups. I hope this is helpful. What is Jesus talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, let me tell you what I think and then show you why. I believe that in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is setting forth the ideal lifestyle of one who truly knows God. In other words, it's only those who know the Lord who can be blessed, as the Beatitudes state. It's only those who know the Lord who are the salt of the earth. It's only those who know the Lord who can be the light of the world. It's only those who know the Lord who can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's only those who know the Lord who can live out the law to the degree that verses 21 through 48 detail. Chapter 6, it's only those who know the Lord who can pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Chapter 6, it's only those who know the Lord who can properly respond to the instructions regarding laying up treasures in heaven, the eye being the lamp of the whole body, serving God and not money, not being anxious about tomorrow, etc. Chapter 7, it's only those who know the Lord who can discern false prophets from true ones and then the corresponding fruits with both of them. Likewise, it's only those who know the Lord who can bear good fruit. 
And at the same time, at the very end of the sermon, it's only those who know the Lord who will be like the wise master builder who hears his words and applies them because apart from the Lord, the requirements given in this sermon are impossible. They're impossible. But what Jesus is doing is he's laying out the idealistic life of one who knows the Lord. And ultimately, how does one come to know the Lord? John 17, 3, Jesus says eternal life is knowing Christ. Philippians 3, Paul said, I count it all. And what was it all? All of his religious credentials. It's all rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We come to know the Lord, friends, by knowing Christ through faith in him. And this is exactly Jesus' point in this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is about life in Jesus. It's what the life of a believer should be like. Now, following this, and this is important. If you're tuning out, tune back in. This is what I wanted to get to. Following this, the impact of this sermon is twofold. Okay? To someone who was not in Christ, the impact would be to raise awareness of sin and raise awareness of the need for salvation. This would have been the position of most of the original audience in this day, I'm convinced. As Jesus explains life with God to those who thought they had life with God, they would have realized they are missing something. The Pharisees had done everything humanly possible to try to have this sort of religious life with God, and yet Jesus' words would have exposed the fact that they did not even know God or love him. Even those who were supposedly the religious elite did not live the type of life that was a true follower of God. Chapter 5, verse 20, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have been impossible in the average hearer's eyes. And so simply put, one effect of this sermon would have been to show the crowd of unbelievers their need for a salvation and a righteousness which came only from Jesus Christ himself. But there's a second impact of the Sermon on the Mount, and I would say really the heart behind the Sermon on the Mount is what true life in Christ ought to look like. His disciples are the ones who are closest near him. He is addressing life in Christ. He's explaining a scenario of walking in fellowship with God with a new heart. And the impact would have been on a believer that they would have seen what their life in Christ should be like. So whether the disciples at this time were true followers of Christ or they were not yet true followers of Christ, it's really irrelevant because we know they eventually would be true followers of Christ. And it's without a doubt that the disciples would have remembered the Sermon on the Mount as they saw the risen Christ and as the Spirit entered in and took up residence within. And just as an evidence of this, the Gospel of Matthew was written 20 years after the sermon was given. And Matthew remembered it to the extent to where he could write it down along with the Holy Spirit. And so this sermon had an impact on the disciples of how their life in Christ was to look. So as the conclusion of these two impacts, the Sermon on the Mount both points to Christ as Savior and speaks of the kind of life that can be and should be experienced by one who's in him. It should be normal of a Christian, which means Christ many or many Christ. It informs what this kind of true life ought to be. So with all that as background and these two impacts in mind, I want to read these two verses again. Matthew 5, 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lord, open our eyes to see and understand this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we notice here, and I've already pointed this out, but it's this pattern. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. This is the form that Jesus will use throughout chapter 5 in addressing the scribes and Pharisees' misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. We already talked about how they had missed the point, and so Jesus says here, you have heard that it was said, but let me tell you what it really means. They thought that it was just a matter of jumping through the hoops and then you get to heaven. They thought, if I don't kill anyone, if I don't steal anything, if I don't fall down and worship Baal, a false god, then I'm good to go. And this religious system of self-righteous deeds needed to be exposed for missing the mark. It needed to be exposed as being wrong. It wasn't in line with God's will and desire for the people. And so from the beginning of Jesus' ministry all the way to the end, he would have harsh and strong words for the scribes and Pharisees who invented and taught this system. And so Jesus says in verse 27 and throughout this chapter, you have heard that it was said, and he applies it to six misunderstandings that they had misled the people in. Now, one of these areas that they had reduced to external morality was adultery. They had concluded that as long as you don't physically sleep with another man's wife, you're good to go in God's eyes concerning immorality. This may have left the door open for two singles to sleep together, or perhaps even a married man to sleep with a single woman. And at a bare minimum, we know that they had allowed lust to be harbored and housed in the heart. It's totally fine by the way they define this law. And they, in a sense, guys, I was thinking about this, they're really a lot like the Gnostics. They had separated their outward action from their inward spiritual condition. The Gnostics had separated the body and the mind to where they were two different components that were unrelated. And so as such, the Gnostics would sin with their bodies and claim that their minds were still pure. Well, the Pharisees essentially did the opposite, right? The Pharisees would sin in their minds, but they would keep their outward body pure. And right, I think we can understand both these are wrong. Both these are wrong. God has made us as one person composed of two parts, an inner man and an outer man that make up one full person. They had so emphasized outward conformity to the law, to the letter of the law, that they had altogether missed the spirit of the law as it addresses the inner man. Well, going back to last week, Deontay did a great job of teaching on the passage of turning the other cheek. And in light of Deontay's talk on this outward conformity, I came across a humorous story. The great American evangelist Peter Cartwright was known for losing the U.S. Congress seat to Abraham Lincoln, but is better known for being a Methodist circuit rider. What's a circuit rider? Let me tell you. A circuit rider rode a horse from town to town throughout the Wild West, which in this day was Tennessee and Kentucky, and he did so preaching the gospel. Cartwright was a very rugged man, as one had to be in order to do this job. And for who he was and what he did, he baptized 12,000 people. Yet, he, even himself, had his flaws. As the story goes, one day after he preached, a man came up to him, and to test the sincerity of Cartwright's Christianity, he struck him on the right cheek and then on the left. Through both blows, Cartwright stood his ground. He did not retaliate. 
Yet when the man struck him a third time, this strong evangelist landed a nice uppercut on that chap's face. And as he did so, he said, my Lord never said about a third slap. (laughs) I think this is maybe an example of holding to the letter of the law rather than the spirit of it. My Lord never said anything about a third slap. Well, specifically, back to our context now, with this command regarding adultery, the scribes and Pharisees had missed the heart and limited the command to the physical act of fornicating with a married woman. Really, what they did is they treated this like the Old Testament command of thievery or theft. They said they viewed it as stealing another man's wife, and anything outside of that was not considered adultery. And friends, I just want to brainstorm for a minute Think about how much heinous sexual sin can occur that doesn't fall under this definition, right? Most people today would agree that sleeping with another person's spouse is wrong, but when it comes to premarital sex, it's the norm, or fooling around before marriage, it's the norm. It doesn't even matter if you're in a committed relationship or not in our culture. Having multiple partners is to be expected long before marriage is considered And even some married people don't care if their partner seeks out pleasure outside of their own marriage, whether on their own or from another source. In fact, it's not even an abnormal thing to see some open marriages today, which are okay with either partner sleeping with whomever he or she wants. And I just wonder, how would our culture have fit in with the Pharisees' understanding of this Old Testament law? Perhaps it would have fit in without a problem. Perhaps you could still be religious and get away with a lot of that. And hopefully, friends, with, with a discerning eye looking at this today, we can see that they had altogether missed it. They hadn't gotten some of it and missed part of it. They had missed the whole thing. Okay. <clears throat> so I want to ask, what's the intent of this command? As we're working through this, what is the intent of this command? And I believe Jesus really explains it here in verse 28. He says, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As I mentioned early on, God's punishment for adultery was death. He took it very seriously. And while typically the use of adultery in in the culture would have been having sex with someone who was married or while you're married, having sex with someone, both the Old Testament and the New Testament expand the term to refer to sexual relations outside of marriage. Again, this can textually be proven. They expand the term to refer to any sexual relations outside of marriage. And I, for example, look at this verse 28. Jesus really makes this clear by using the term everyone instead of a married man, and he uses the term woman instead of the term wife. So Jesus opens the box up to include all sexual conduct outside of marriage. He explains it more clearly what the intent of this command was. And friends, in case you're not convinced yet that any sex outside of marriage is sin, I want to show you a few passages. If you've got your Bible, flip to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to go to 3, so be ready to turn. To your right, to all the T's, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What's God's will for your life? That you abstain from sexual immorality. And immorality is an even more general term. Anything immoral. Verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. 
not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Flip back to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse 13. He says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, both of which have sexual connotations, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Again, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is listing the deeds of the flesh. He said, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Three different terms. I mean, even if we're going to take a liberal approach, one of those terms has to have to do with something outside of marriage. And I would submit to you that they all talk about purity within marriage and outside of marriage when it comes to sexual conduct. And so God's will, friends, is clear. Any sexual conduct outside of marriage is sin. Do you believe that? Any sexual conduct outside of marriage is sin. This would have been a stark contrast to the view on adultery that the scribes and Pharisees taught. Well, before we react too much, I think there's a ditch on the other side of the road as well. Some have taken this passage and formed beliefs that all sex is evil, right? Okay, well, if it's sin, I'm just going to get away from it altogether. In fact, Origen, maybe you've heard of him, an early church father in the early third century, upon reading this passage in Matthew chapter 5 and being convicted, had himself castrated in hopes to do away with all sexuality. In similar fashion, we know that monks and nuns vow to never marry as they have supposedly been married to Christ and Christ alone. But friends, listen, both physical mutilation and forced celibacy miss the point here as well. God has given sex as a bonding aspect of marriage that is to be enjoyed within the marriage covenant. In fact, listen, I want you to listen closely to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. It says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. These are all descriptors. And I want to ask, what are these men going to do? What are these terrible people going to do? Next clause, men who forbid marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you read it, it says that a husband and wife ought to come together physically on a regular basis so that they will not be tempted. And so friends, let's forget about the idea that all sex is evil. It's not. God made it and he made it good to be enjoyed within the covenant marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Okay. Retracting now for a moment, we're we're trying to answer the question, what is the intent of this command? What is the intent of Jesus' comment on this command? And I think to answer this question, I want to ask and answer another question. You ready? Why is adultery sin? Or let me put it this way, why is adultery evil? Well, I believe it's because sex is the superglue that keeps marriage intact. Sex is meant to bring about unity in the marriage bond, a bond that actually pictures our bond with God. 
Think about it. In Genesis 1, God creates everything and he says it's all good. And what does God do in Genesis 2? He creates marriage. That's the first thing on his mind after creation. God's design was that one man and one woman were to love one another, become one flesh, learn to live with one another, and fill the earth and multiply. Now, if one partner begins to have an adulterous affair on the other, what does this lead to? Well, we know it leads to disunity. And what does it eventually lead to? It leads to divorce. Which is why the very next section, it's no accident, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 Deal with divorce. Jesus has to re-explain that God never re-intended divorce either. And so really in both these commands regarding divorce and adultery, God the Father and God the Son are upholding the sanctity of marriage. And since marriage, follow with me here, since marriage is to be held in sanctity and being that sex is one of the means that keep this unique bond together, Sex must also be held in sanctity. In other words, sex must be kept holy. Sex must be set apart for the marriage covenant. Why? Because it's something. Friends, sex is something more than just physical touch. It points to our greater relationship with God. So let's return to adultery in light of this, in light of this profound thought. How does adultery fit in with this all? Well, more than just destroying the marital relationship at a human level, adultery destroys the marital relationship at a divine level, the unity at a divine level. In other words, adultery reveals a deeper adultery and adultery of the heart, which is sin against God. Sinning by adultery is sinning against God. It's putting self above God. It's choosing to act on the basis of pleasure rather than on the basis of devotion and obedience and commitment. And this breaks our bond with him. That's why the Lord said to Ezekiel regarding the elders in Ezekiel in chapter 14, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, the Lord will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. And here we go. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your focus or your faces away from all your abominations. Friends, what is adultery? Adultery is an issue in the heart. It's an issue in the heart. So returning to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus raises the bar to the highest degree when it comes to lust and adultery. Way before fornication occurs, way before inappropriate touching or even inappropriate talking, Jesus says even a look that is done with a lustful heart is adultery and it's sin. The heart is the issue because the heart is the control center of the entire person. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, for as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. A lot of times I get asked this question, 
Well, Matt, how far is too far in my dating relationship? Where's the line at? How close can I get to the line? Friends, do you realize that's the worst possible question you can ask? Right? It's somewhat humorous, but in all honesty, it's actually a pharisaical question to ask. It's exactly what the Pharisees, think about it. It's exactly what the Pharisees had done with the law. They wanted to know how close they could get to breaking God's word without technically breaking the letter of it. Instead, we ought to be asking this, how far can I extend the commands of God? How can I expand a negative command to every imaginable positive application? How can I allow God's word to permeate and affect every aspect of my life? Elsewhere in scripture, God says, let there not even be a hint of immorality among you. And so returning what I, to what I believe is the, uh, the heart of this passage, God is after the heart. Right? He wants all of our affections devoted to him. He doesn't want 40% to him and 60% to my own sinful pursuits or my own sinful pleasure. God wants it all. Therefore, Jesus says the issue of adultery is really an issue in the heart. But notice something else he says. Look at 28 again. I want to highlight a few things. 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And what I want to point out is that the look itself is not the sin. The look itself is not the sin. This word here in the original is blepo, which means to look, or it can mean looking. And here it's parsed as a present participle, indicated, indicating that it's ongoing present action. In other words, it's speaking of an intentionally prolonged gazing. I want to ask this question. Can you necessarily control what's put before your face? Can you control what you see at, at school, as you walk around school, or what may pop up on the internet? And granted, I, I do think there's wisdom in putting up fences in your life and not going in places where you will be tempted. But let me ask it this way. Is there a difference then between temptation, or let's just say seeing a woman, and then seeing a woman and the result being sin, or gals, vice versa? In other words, is the look sin? Well, Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, look at what he said, if you look at a woman with lust, you have already committed the sin. And here's how this works, friends. It comes down to the lust in the heart. We're talking about the same thing. Both the verbs used, grammatically speaking, both the verbs used to lust after and to commit adultery with are in the aorist tense, which means they're a holistic, completed action that's most often in the past tense. In other words, Jesus could have said this. He could have said, if you look at a woman and you lust for her then, you have now committed adultery with her in your heart. Or he could have said, the one who looks at a woman with lust has right then and there committed adultery with her. But why the aorist tense? Why the aorist tense? Well, in, case, in any case of adultery, which scripture broadens to include any sexual immorality, the heart has already been sinful. The heart has already been lusting, and the prolonged gaze is simply the completion of that sin. If the heart were not previously desiring lust, then it would not lust upon seeing the temptation of a woman, or in a gal's case, of a man. But if the heart, and get this, you've got to track here, if the heart is already predisposed towards sexual lust, then it's only a matter of time before it reaches out and latches on to a victim. The look is to satisfy the evil desire that's already been there. And so again, the problem is not the temptation. The problem is not the look or what walks in front of you. 
The problem is the lust that has been harbored in the heart all along. So if someone has a lustful heart, when they look at a woman with lust, the sin has already been there. It's now just acting out, or really it's taking full form. And that's why Jesus said, even a look that is done in lust is just as much a sin as actually committing adultery. Looking at a woman with lust does not bring about lust suddenly. He has already committed the adultery in his heart. In other words, and let me put it this way, it's not lustful looking that causes sin in the heart. It's sin in the heart that causes lustful looking. Okay, it's not lustful looking that causes sin in the heart. It's the sin in the heart that causes lustful looking. And I like how one commentator put it. He said, the one who looks at a woman with lust brought to fruition his lust with her. He doesn't need to commit adultery in order to sin because the sin has been completed. It was dreamed up in the bedroom and now has taken on flesh with the look. Friends, I want to tell you this, so I want to encourage you. (laughs) It is possible, young men, it is possible to look at a woman and not lust. Okay? We know it's possible, right? It is possible to view an older woman or an older woman in the church as a mother and to treat them that way. It's possible to view a younger woman in the church as a sister and to treat them that way. It is possible to see an unbeliever or believer for that matter, but let's say an unbeliever who's dressed scandalously and to, instead of lusting after her, to have pity for her, to pray for her salvation, to cry out to God to save her, that she would not be putting her contentment in the attention that she draws from men. That's possible. For example, Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, I want to read this to you. Genesis chapter 39 Verse 7 says, It came about after these events that his master, speaking of Joseph, his master's wife looked at desire at Joseph and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then, and catch this, How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And in verse 12, she still tries to lie with him. What does he do? He hightails it out of there without a piece of clothing on him, right? And not because he was stripping, because she went to grab him and he threw it off and took out of there, right? Joseph desired to please God. His heart was predisposed to want to please God rather than predisposed toward lustful sin, Catch this. This is a great quote by one commentator. The one who looks at a woman with lust brought to... Oh, I already read that. This quote. (laughs) Jesus is not speaking of unexpected and unavoidable exposure to sexual temptation. When a man happens to see a woman provocatively dressed, Satan will surely try to tempt that man with lustful thoughts. But there is no sin if the temptation is resisted and the gaze is turned elsewhere. In other words, Joseph did not sin just by interacting with Potiphar. Another example, David. Okay, David one day strolls out onto his balcony and there happens to be a woman across the town bathing on her roof. Now, upon seeing that, was that necessarily sin? No. But David's heart was predisposed towards sin so that when he saw Bathsheba, he lusted after her, he called for her, he slept with her, he got her pregnant, and he killed her husband. So friends, what's the point? It comes down to the heart. 
right? And there's a final truth I want to consider back in Matthew 5. There's one last truth, one last nugget. We've been talking about it, but explicitly it's this. It's that what we do stems from within. In other words, we don't just do things at random. We hear this a lot. Oh, so-and-so fell hard into that sin. Or, oh man, that person really went off the deep end. And while this may seem true outwardly, it's never, ever, ever true inwardly. It's a gradual process of sowing a thought and reaping an action over and over and over until finally it comes out to the public. Friends, no matter where it ends, sin always begins with an evil thought being sown in the mind and in the heart. Casting crowns hit it on the head in their song, Slow Fade. They said this, It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white turn to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. And so the key is in the heart. Now, in conclusion, what ought the impact of these verses be? Well, remember the introduction. I believe there's a twofold impact of this sermon. And so first I want to address those who are living in Christ. Number one is this. Remember that the marriage relationship is important to God. If it wasn't, then God wouldn't care if there was sanctity within the marriage bed. But marriage is sacred to God. It's sacred because it gives us a picture of the union that we are to have with him. If you're married or ever will be married, you'll find that you become closer to your spouse than any human on the earth. I can say that about my wife, Trina. I'm closer to her, better friends with her than any other person on this planet. And yet, I believe one reason God implemented marriage was to give us a snapshot of the type of unity and closeness that we are to have with him. Trina and I talk about that all the time. Friends, just like he doesn't want us running after false gods and idols, so in marriage we're to be married to one person and one person only. And I think it's to teach us faithfulness and commitment in a real physical, practical way. And likewise, then, our sexual members were made for this purpose, to be unified with one person. In summary, this passage affirms the sanctity of marriage in God's eyes. Number two, Jesus desires us to be free from sexual sin. If we didn't catch that yet, let me just put it plainly for us. Recall again the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus expresses the desire for blessing. He wants us to be blessed. And really it ends with blessing too in chapter 7 regarding the wise man. Therefore, this passage on lust in the heart is no different. Jesus would not state this without some intent of us living it out. Granted, I understand, friends, we have all broken this command at one time or another. So if you're struggling right now, or if you're struggling in this sin, don't fall for Satan's lie that it doesn't matter. Might as well just go commit adultery anyways, or go keep doing it anyways. Don't fall for that lie. You must fight and be victorious through Christ. But I want to remind us that the original intent of the covenant relationship between God and his people included the fact that sex was to remain sacred. So Jesus is not only reiterating and upholding this command for the New Testament, but he's expounding on it and giving it its truer and fuller meaning. If someone knows the Lord and is walking with him through Christ, then sexual impurity should not categorize their life. Christ bought us from sin and he desires us to be free from it. And if you want to ask the question why, read the Sermon on the Mount so that we can be salt to the earth, so that we can be light to the world. So that our righteousness will, in fact, both positional righteousness and practical, will, in fact, 
surpassed that of the scribes and Pharisees in Christ. And so Jesus desires us to be free from sexual sin. And I just want to encourage you too. He's given us the power to do this. Okay, I'll just read for you a couple of verses in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And then in verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts. Jesus desires us to be pure. Number three, sin originates in the heart. We've hit this, but man, how's your purity going? I just want to get practical. How is your purity? How are your eyes? There's a tendency to downplay pornography in our day and age. Oh, well, it doesn't really hurt anyone else. No one ever will know about it. It's just me, and I'm doing something that makes me feel good. Don't I have the right to feel good? No one's ever going to know anyways. And friends, if there's one thing you take away tonight, young men, this sort of self-centered mindset is going to get you killed. Maybe not physically, at least not right away, but it will spiritually kill you. Pornography and masturbation, I've seen it time and time again, will put you into the corner, beat you up to where you can't even stand up anymore. Be sure your sin will find you out. It will come back to bite you. It will come out to those who you're hiding it from. It will come out in your marriage. It will progress. Confess your sin. Repent turn to God, and declare war on it. Women, you are not beyond this lust either. I'm not going to elaborate to that extent, but I know lust can be a struggle for you as well. But I want to ask you this, how are you dressing? This is a legitimate struggle for not some, but most guys. Are you considering your brothers in Christ as you choose an outfit, or are you only thinking of yourself in the latest fashions? Listen to this quote by A.W. Pink. He says, If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after are not less, but perhaps more guilty. In this matter is not only too often the case that men sin, but that women tempt them to do so. How great then must the guilt of the great majority of modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of young men. Friends, sin begins in the heart but it fleshes itself out. So make war on it. Number four, guys, sin is progressive. If you're not killing it, it's gonna kill you. Okay, we don't have time, but in James 1, you can track the progress of a temptation leading to a lust, leading to sin, which leads to death. It will progress. Man, if you think it's not a big deal to look at porn, I just wanna ask, how has it progressed from when you first had the thought of it? How has that addiction progressed? And think about this, where is it progressing to? Where will this sin take you? Do you think it's just going to disappear when you're married? You see, here's the thing. I I would love to spend a whole night on this. It's a matter of self-control. And if you don't have self-control as a single man, do you think it's just going to pop up as a married man? I promise you it's not. I promise you it is not. If you masturbate and look at porn as a single man, what makes you think you won't do the same thing as a married man? Just as an example, one of my dear friends Christian man, struggled with pornography, began a relationship, continued to struggle, became engaged, continued to struggle, got married a month into his marriage, his wife caught him looking at porn. And this is a solid Christian man. I said, brother, were you not satisfied or what was? He said, no, 
I was. Friends, it's a matter of the heart. Be sensitive when you feel yourself sinning. This is just practical time out for a moment. If you look at a woman with lust, do not get used to that thought and numb to it. Repent at the thought. In other words, view it like a snowball. It just starts rolling when you have that lust. Great. Cut it off right there. You cry out to God, Lord, forgive me for that thought. I don't want to do this again. You cannot wait until that snowball gets rolling down the hill and is this big and then try to stand in the middle. It's just going to plow you right over. You can't fight that sin when you're already on your computer. You've got to make war on that sin at the thought. Jesus said even a look is sin. And so remember, sin will progress. And lastly, believers don't go on sinning. I just want to say this. If you're in Christ, you should not be given to a particular sin. No, we won't be perfect, but sin cannot categorize your life. A sin in particular. You have every resource. You have the word of God. You have the community of the people of God. You have the spirit of God living in you. There's no excuse not to be overcoming sin. Exhaust all your means to fight this sin. Just as the adulterous heart panders itself in advance, so the godly heart protects itself in advance. Now, to the unbelievers here tonight, you may be thinking, this is an impossible standard. This guy's talking crazy. There's no way I can cut off these outlets for my sexual passions. And you know what? You're right. You can't. You cannot achieve this standard. If you don't know Christ, and if you're sitting here thinking, I can't do this, and maybe you don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, friends, this isn't your takeaway. Your takeaway is to come to Christ. Your takeaway is to put your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you, both in his person and his work. To put your faith in his perfect life that he overcame every temptation and to put your faith in the fact that he died for your sins and he overcame death by raising from the dead. He will change you from the inside out. You don't have to conform your outward life to please him and then come to him. Let him change you. And in fact, I want to encourage you, and then we're going to pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. you got to see this if you haven't seen this before. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're struggling with this sin, if you're an unbeliever here tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is going to speak to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Great. Thanks, Paul. Who are the unrighteous? What sort of people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, he says. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of them. Not one person who's categorized by that type of life is fit for heaven. That's the bad news. But look at verse 11. He says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. Paul, how did this happen? How can I be washed? How can I be set apart or sanctified unto God? How can I have my sins declared righteous? Me declared righteous, my sins justified in God's sight. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Friends, if you are in this type of lifestyle, there is great hope for you tonight. There is great hope for you tonight. You can have your sins forgiven, washed clean, remade, renew, and Christ will change you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this wonderful passage in Matthew chapter 5. Thank you, Lord, that it is impactful for both the unbeliever and the believer. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us, you have laid out for us what life in Christ ought to look like all throughout your word. And Lord, often, even as believers, we need reminders of this. Lord, we need to be reminded what ought to be true of our redeemed lives. Lord, as you flesh yourself out in us, as you conform our image to Christ's, Father, would you purify us? Purify our hearts, Lord. Get to the level of our hearts. It's not just about what we do. Lord, I want my heart to long for you more than anything in this world. Father, I want to love Jesus more than I love any personal pleasure, any personal pursuit, any personal desire of any kind, God. Would you fill collectively our hearts with such a love for Christ and what he has done and yet, Lord, also a discipline to turn from this sin. Lord, for both men and women, I know both are in this camp tonight. And Lord, for those who don't know Christ, would you set them free? Lord, would you save them, sanctify them, justify them, Lord? Make them your children, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.